Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Kingdom Driven Family Podcast with your host, Andrea Schwartz. This podcast will equip and empower you to help advance Christ's kingdom through God's primary institution, the family, building a home that serves Christ and His kingdom. Welcome to the Kingdom Driven Family. I am your host, Andrea Schwartz, and today I'm going to be talking with Catherine Brown, who lives on the other side of the country from me. I'm in California. She's in West Virginia, and Kathy and I know each other from one of my Institutes of Biblical Law classes that I do for women, and Kathy has a good perspective on relating biblical law to the issues and circumstances we find today, and that's why I thought I would have this chat with her today, and specifically, we're going to be talking about recovering the gender roles that the Bible sets forth, as opposed to the humanistic and compromised roles of men and women, boys and girls, that not only do we find in the culture, all too often we find in the church. So hello, Kathy. Hello, Andrea. Just by means of a little background, let our listeners know who you are and, you know, your stage in life and things like that. I am a 37-year-old married mother of one, soon to be two. I came from American Baptist upbringing. My husband came from United Methodist upbringing high school sweethearts. And when we entered college, we started to realize that our denominations didn't really give us a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine. So we went, we went looking, we went searching and, and we, we found reformed thought. We found five point Calvinism. We found Christian reconstructionism with Rush Dooney and the Chalcedon Institutes. Um, and we have pursued since then biblical orthodoxy, uh, both in systematic theology and in historical orthodoxy, going back in the past and seeing this is where the church has been, this is where the church has made mistakes, and this is how we start recapturing back to what we ought to be doing. Now, one of the things that impressed me about you when I first met you was the extent to which you are a reader. So recount for the listeners what you told me. I don't remember if you told me it was in terms of books or in terms of pages that you read a year? I read about 100,000 pages a year. And that's, that's a mixture. That's, that's a little bit of contemporary theology, a little bit of, of the modern writers, but not a whole lot. I go back and do a lot of historical stuff. I'm currently reading through the complete works of Augustine, and I've done all of the Church Fathers up through Augustine timeline-wise. I, I like going in and finding lost tidbits of reformed thought from lesser known people just because we don't come across it anymore. And it's not that I'm fully a nothing but theology reader. I, I do a lot of modern reading too outside of theology just so that I can keep a an eye on the pulse <laughs> of of the society that we live in. These are the issues they're dealing with and this is what they're trying to teach our kids right now. And how that theology, how that worldview in literature is going to play out in their decision-making process for the next decade, two decades, three decades. So it's not uncommon today for most people to think that the, what you've just described about yourself, 
and I'm a reader too, but I don't think I get as many pages in as you do. But that's not how people traditionally, or I should say, currently view a good Christian woman. She should be more, she should be more involved with hospitality and crafts and cooking and, and things like that. Not that these are not important, because if we fail to do those things, then our families are naked and hungry. What specifically gears you towards not deciding that to be a woman, you have to stop thinking? I, I, had, a, I had a unique upbringing <laughs> in that I did not have female companionship or eldership or leadership. I had an abusive mother. Um, through teenage years and through the 20s. So when a lot of women were forming these bonds that brought them together for social purposes, for domestic purposes, for general relationship purposes, I did not have that. I had the opposite of that. I, I had, this is what's wrong. And I had to find a way to figure out why is this wrong? I had to find an explanation. And fortunately, even though they hadn't raised me in biblical faith, my family had at least exposed me to the Bible. So by sheer accident on their part, but by God's providence, I had the tools that I needed to start looking to find the answers, to find what we were supposed to be doing as biblical women. Um, it gave me a, a unique perspective, kind of on the outside looking in on Christian femininity, um, because I was not raised in the norms, the evangelical norms. I wasn't raised in all of that domesticity. It's not that we don't take care of things in and around the house, but that was never the purpose for women. I never understood that as the purpose for women because I was trying to comprehend biblical femininity purely from a, a biblical standpoint early on since I didn't have the relationships to encourage me in, in, in other ways. So it, it's a unique perspective. I, I would not recommend it to everyone, and yet God, in his omniscience, gave me what I needed to send me on a path looking for how to recover. This is what women should be, biblically. And since then, he has brought me into the lives of others that have benefited from that. Slowly but surely, I'm starting to see some of the benefits myself. It's, it's not everyone's just an island anymore. God gives us the paths. God lays out lives for us. Mine happened to have gone this way. Um, he also gave me some very good talents as far as intellect goes. I, I never had to take Greek or Latin to really pick up on it quickly. I, I was good through classical music training just to figure out languages on my own uh, and the nuances of them. So God prepared me both in, both in the circumstances that he brought me through and in what he put in me innately as abilities to be able to parse into a lot more of theology as a woman and then to encourage and drag other women along kicking and screaming behind me. I can tell you that the motivation when I started my biblical law classes for women and then expanding that to mentorship and counseling had everything to do with women understanding that although the Bible gives women a subordinate role in terms of hierarchy, we should never look at that as a substandard or inferior role in terms of quality. And so 
when women begin to delve into theology and specifically the application of biblical law to not only their lives, but the lives of their family and their greater community, we have an elevation of a society in obedience to God because, as I like to remind everyone, man and woman alike, the first not good of the Bible was that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And it wasn't so God said, okay, it's not good for man to be alone. You know, he already had dogs. He already had pets. He, he already had that. So obviously that didn't satisfy. And he didn't give him a drinking buddy. He gave him a woman. And the woman, being different from the man, was meant to complement and complete and help the man, not help the man be satisfied physically, emotionally, mentally, etc., but to help the man in his dominion calling. Now, why I tapped you for this particular conversation is uh, a topic that came up in our one of our studies about how much emphasis we put on little girls in terms of, oh, you're so pretty. Oh, isn't she adorable? Oh, she's just gorgeous. Oh, the boys are going to have, you know, they're going to be knocking on your door. Dad, you're going to have to get your rifle. And, you know, that's just for girls. So why don't you elaborate a little bit on the conversation we had and your perspective on that? Vanity is, comes easy to us as women. Um, vanity is the natural downfall, the natural bastardization of the beauty that God has given us taken to the wrong means. Um, the problem with fallen creation is that it, it, it doesn't go just totally black. It takes the good things that God gave us and taints them. So as a part of our feminine identity, we were given beauty, a lot of the same beauty that was echoed in the creation. We were given softer countenances. We were given softer forms. We were given rounded forms with pleasing curves, not because we're supposed to be sexualized or we're supposed to be, you know, just looked at as beautiful, but as a complementary. The problem comes in the fallen aspect of that. When we take that beyond the purpose of it just being, oh, didn't God make a beautiful creation? We're not giving the glory to God as, as for the beauty anymore. We're claiming it for ourselves. And the, the boys have their own problem in this. They, they have a, a likewise that tends to play out. They were, they were assigned work, the ability to work hard, but they were also assigned joy and, and enjoyment in being able to do their work. And yet the bastardization of that becomes idleness, that they shuck off the work and want to just hold on to the enjoyment altogether. So we have this, this dual blessing from God, women being given some beautiful form just, just as a complement to creation and that being tainted into vanity. And then we have the men who have been given the blessing of being able to enjoy their work under God and then tainting that into idleness and not wanting to do the work, just wanting to go after the enjoyment aspect of life. Okay, before we get into the girl aspects of this, I'd like you to elaborate what idleness you're talking about. What's the idleness that you're perceiving in terms of how little boys are encouraged in their activities and pursuits? Well, you, it, it plays out differently in different cultures, but there's this historical pattern 
that when a society outgrows God, outgrows a want of God or, or puts him aside, grows stagnant, men tend towards excessive entertainments. They want to shorten their work days. They want to shorten their work requirements. They want to shorten the burden of responsibility put on them. And they want to go play. So in some situations, that's gambling and horse tracks. Where we live, West Virginia, you know, small towns, there's not much of that available. We are obsessed with sports. We spend our lives encouraging our sons to spend four, five, six nights a week practicing two or three hours a night and then going and playing that many games every single week and trying to get into college on scholarships, not so that they can get an education, but so that they can hopefully then go on and play professional sports because we want to play a game for our life. We want to be entertained. And if we're not good enough to actually make it professionally, well, at least we can sit around and watch it and keep up on it and somehow vicariously be a part of play for life. I don't know how far it goes. I know Midwest has some of the similar problems. Some of it's just the availability of entertainments, but ours tends to be towards sports. And that's not without historical basis. You look back in Roman times, by the time the women were really becoming conceited and focused on all of their vanities, the men were spending all of their times down at the Colosseums and the games and all of the spectacles that went on. Uh, and it isn't just Rome that's had this problem throughout societies, throughout the ages. Women tend to away from a practical purpose and towards paying attention to how they look and trying to hold on to how they look. And men tend to shuck off their work and want to go play as much as they can. So what you're really saying is the dominion mandate, which God gave to Adam and Eve, which we can say was given to the family, has been co-opted so that the emphasis for little girls and little boys has to do with a humanistic or materialistic end result that says you have made it if you're a fashion model, you're an actress, you're famous if you're a girl, or you have achieved high levels of sports or whatever it is. But some people would say, no, 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 we've got entrepreneurs, we've got tech people or whatever. Maybe your perception of the boy thing is maybe too narrow. How do you see it playing out with the successful areas of our culture? But what's successful? I, I, I would first and foremost ask what's successful. Yes, it's possible to be able to hold down good jobs and still do all of this stuff. But the chief end of man, if I go back to, to Westminster number one, the chief end of man is to bring glory to God an inordinate amount of time devoted towards ourselves is not bringing glory to God. And the problem with both of these is that they don't bring glory to God. They, they seek to take what God created for his glory and then turn around and bring that glory back to man. A woman wants to be seen as pretty because she can claim that for herself. A man wants to be talented and wants to have all eyes on him because he can claim it for himself. Yeah, okay, the, the, the token guy in the end zone who points to heaven and says, oh, it's all for the glory of God. No, that, that doesn't necessarily make it for the glory of God. Find me biblically where we play games and get paid excessively for the glory of God. Not to mention that some sports involve brutality that one of the ways in which you win is the actions that maybe not have as their intent 
I'm going to give multiple concussions to my opponent. But that's the, the net result. I mean, there's so much out there right now in terms of the detriment of the collision sports over a long period of time. We're not just talking about a season. We're talking about all the little boys that, you know, played all these sports and they got dinged in the process or in the practice. And now we maybe wonder why people turn to alcohol and drugs. In some cases, they're just in such incredible pain. Well, in the Proverbs, what, 28 or 29, the, the prayer is, God give me neither too little or too much, too little and I might be tempted to rob, and too much I might be tempted to turn my back on the Lord my God. When you are comfortable, truly overly comfortable financially to excess, you don't pay attention to the needs of others as much. I understand a lot of them are very charitable, but it's nothing to be charitable with 5% of a $5 million income. Let's see what your grocery bill looks like. So you have all of this excess and how much did you just spend on that vehicle? What, how many people could that vehicle have fed that amount of money? You, you lose perspective. God in his omniscience gave us community where we can work to help each other. And those who make so much above and beyond for the, for the attention of others, for the amusement of others, creating envy in others, wishing they could be in the same spot. You, it doesn't take, it doesn't take a psychologist to look at that or anybody studied to, to look and say, yeah, yeah, they have that money, but they're not really paying attention to other people around them. It breeds narcissism. One of the things that's a concept that Christians especially need to get, if they are not in line with the greatest commandment to love God entirely, heart, soul, mind, strength, possessions, on and on, and they do good works, they still are unfaithful to their creator because if they're not doing it for God's glory in obedience to God's word, then they have another object or another thing that's governing them. And so whether or not whatever percentage they give to help various causes, we have to remember that heaven will not be populated by humanitarians who decided that they were going to determine what were the important issues. If we don't accept what God says is of utmost importance, then we're just, I guess we could say, we'll be richer inhabitants of hell as opposed to poorer inhabitants of hell, but heaven will not be, and eternal life in the presence of Christ will not be their future. And God, God was merciful. He laid out for us what we can and should be doing for his glory. We don't have the right then to turn around and do whatever we want to do. Oh, but it's okay, because I'm going to put the tagline on the end, for God's glory. Or, I did it for Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. That's, that's token Christianity. It's bumper sticker Christianity. It's saying, I can live however I want to live, despite what the Bible says, as long as I give God credit for it. God doesn't want credit for unholiness. God doesn't want credit for something in opposition to what he's commanded from you. So let's get back to now the little girl thing, which is actually where our conversation started a while back. And you were noting, and I was almost immediately after we had our conversation that I was overhearing a number of women comparing pictures of their grandchildren. 
And first of all, by God's grace, nobody apparently has ugly grandchildren because (laughs) no matter what picture anybody shows from their wallet or on Facebook, oh, she's gorgeous. Oh, she's so gorgeous. Now, as an aside, I remember getting those first baby pictures back from the hospital and my children were anything but gorgeous. I mean, they were shriveled, they were whatever. Um, That picture was like, oh, gorgeous. But within a week, we had better pictures that didn't look quite so shriveled. So I think it's probably a blessing that, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if it's your little darling, you think your little darling is precious. But it's this emphasis on little girls being pretty. Well, what we have to realize is the conversations we have, the words that we put out there, the things that we regularly talk about, those are what shape our worldview and perspective. So we can say, oh, well, we know that's not the most important thing. But if we're constantly only talking about physical appearance, then that's what we're looking for. That's shaping us internally. It's creating mental discipline within us. And if we, if we, take a step back and look, we'll realize, oh, well, this is all I've been talking about. And suddenly this is all I talk about with other people. It never goes beyond this. It never goes contrary to this. And because of that, we don't look for anything beyond that. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's so pervasive nowadays as the only thing we focus on. We really need to strike back against that and start changing the conversation so that we retrain ourselves to look for something. What about the little girl that just helped the old man get something off the shelf at the grocery store? That was wonderful. But because she didn't have dimples and ringlets in her hair, you're not going to make a comment to her about how how wonderful that was that, that she helped. We have to change the conversation. We have to change what we're willing to talk about and what we regularly talk about. And it doesn't come easy. It means we stop our mouths every time we go to say something like that because we're not only affecting ourselves, in the way that we perceive things, we're affecting the way that child perceives things. What is a four-year-old who has been told nothing but she is pretty, she's gorgeous, what's she gonna grow up to think about herself? Well, I need, I need to stay pretty, I need to stay gorgeous, and I need to make sure that in high school that the boys still like me, and I need to make sure getting out into college that somebody's gonna think I'm pretty enough to marry, and then what happens when I start getting old? That's wrinkles. That's gray hair. I have to hide that because I have to stay pretty because the conversation has only ever been about pretty. We've abandoned beauty is fleeting. It's not something that's supposed to last. It's not even always there in the utmost. We have to start changing the conversations. Well, some people would say, well, there are a lot of emphasis now on girls being smart. So let's tell girls they're smart and let's tell them they can do anything that a man can do. And what we tend to do then is change the conversation in those areas from physical beauty, which everybody still wants to be perceived as pretty or beautiful or whatever. And now we take the shift and we put it to something equally lacking, if that's your whole emphasis, mm-hmm. academic achievement. That's what the society wants to do. That's, they have realized that they're not going to be able to, to sustain, oh, that's pretty all the time by a, a crowd that thinks that they're moral. So they have to provide an alternative. So, oh, well, then it's your, it's your brain that's pretty. It's your heart that's pretty instead, especially if you don't actually have physical pretty. But it's something that you can claim for yourself. It's in who you are. 
Now, who I am is nothing that I claim for myself. It's who God made me to be. And God made me exactly how he made me for a purpose. So instead of just swapping out pretty for smart, we have to take a step back and go, to what, to what end? To what purpose? If, if this is only just something that people are going to be able to fawn over us about, then what's the purpose of it? If I speak in the tongues of angels and men, but dot, 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 have not love, and love is not that schmaltzy feeling that we have inside. If I'm not actively loving God by following his commandments, what good is it? What good is me reading 100,000 pages a year if I'm not actively doing something for God with it? It becomes a different type of vanity, a vanity of the mind. We have to change the conversation from those things which achieve narcissistic ends to those things which achieve theistic ends. Good point. And I think on the emphasis on whether it's intellect or beauty or capability, as you said, it puts the focus back on the individual rather than if we take a look at what the fruits of the spirit are, it's kindness, it's patience, it's for, you know, all these things that God calls us to be. So early on, it's important for children to understand that they may be in small bodies and they may be in a dependent situation more so than their parents, but that the laws of God apply to them as children and it will apply to them when they're young adults and then when they're adults and then when they're middle age, etc. That age doesn't determine obedience, what needs to be followed and what's not. It's that from the get-go, we are subject to the laws of God. And that is the greatest blessing and legacy you can pass on to your children rather than their physical form. Well, we, we've got to, and to help with that, we have to overcome this mindset that we have in our day and age. The post-Victorian, oh, children are innocent. Oh, they're naive. Oh, let them have a childhood. Don't force them to grow up too fast. Where on earth is that biblically? We're held accountable from day one. Where's the doctrine of born in sin? Where's the doctrine of total depravity? It didn't take long listening to my three-week-old scream bloody murder to realize we come out of the womb wanting to be gods of the world around us. We come out of the womb completely mucked up in original sin. And we've lost that doctrine. It's played itself out saying, oh, well, eventually then, it doesn't matter what you show to kids when they're young. They can't understand all of it. So give them a little token amount now, but don't worry about actually trying to teach them or raise them in that until they're full grown. But the Bible says, however you train up a child, that's how they're going to turn out. So if you train them up to be irresponsible, if you train them up to say, oh, just put this little token effort into understanding how you should be biblically, then that's how they're going to turn out as an adult, period. The Bible gives a really good warning on that. I still can't understand why we're saying, let them stay a kid. Okay, I'll let them stay sinful for the rest of their lives, and I'll bring that damnation on them and myself. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The current discourse among people that I interact with on social media 
and also at inside the church, but also in terms of the culture, is this whole Me Too, I've been sexually abused. It's interesting. I've written about this in previous essays, but abuse isn't a biblical term. And I think it would be important to come back to a biblical term. So the Bible talks about fornication and all that that encompasses. It talks about adultery, talks about rape, it talks about incest. And so if we're not going to use biblical terms, which even today the church is reluctant to do, I think it has a lot to do is that we don't intend to use biblical solutions. So why bother using the terms if you're not going to take the whole thing? So you have women, some of whom who have been groomed, oh, you're pretty, you're gorgeous, they grow up and they still want to be pretty and gorgeous, and they still want to flaunt, as you pointed out earlier, the beauty that God has put in womanhood. But then, when it no longer serves their purpose, or it turns on them and somebody decides, I'm going to dominate because you've just given me an open door to do it, then there's this, I've been victimized, I've been traumatized, I've been abused. And I think very few of them, I happen to know very few of them, see any sort of personal responsibility that ended them up there. Not to justify that rape or incest is ever permissible, but they don't connect the dots and see how they facilitated the very things that they now say they hate. This is the natural result of independence. We, we want our daughters to be independent. We say we want our sons to be independent, but they never had that big of a problem with it, but they, they do. We're not meant to be independent. We are not individuals. We are a covenant people in the body of Christ. So I do not live unto myself. I live unto God in the midst of a group of people. I don't get to make the decision that's right for me. And who cares how it impacts somebody else? We find the argument in the food sacrifice to idols. It's not a bad thing to be eating it, but if it causes your brother to stumble, why would you do that to him? We, we, we would never think of sitting there and pouring bottle after bottle down the face of a recovering alcoholic because it would be cruel. And yet men who have said, I, I have a problem with this much exposure. I have a problem with this much hypersexualization, even if they haven't admitted it. It's, it's an understanding. We know that men are more visually stimulated, but we want to sit there and show them all of that skin. We want to sit there and make ourselves into pretty dolls, but we don't want them to treat us like pretty dolls. This is the problem with that independence. Oh, I get to do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter. He's still responsible for his own actions. He's responsible for ultimately for his, his end actions. You're also responsible for causing him to stumble. Do you care so little about him, that he is struggling with this, that he is fighting with this. And you're going to make it as hard as absolutely possible for your perceived rights. That's not a biblical right. I know society is trying to tell you that, but we don't have the right to cause other Christians to stumble. We don't have, even if they're not Christians, we don't have the right to lead the pagans and the heathens into further sin because of our actions. We're supposed to be taking back world from sin we're supposed to be preserving it salt and light this is not salt and light this is a stumbling block and until we get that concept through our heads that we do not live for ourselves alone this is going to play out in multiple iterations right now 
the issue du jour is the Me Too movement. Please understand, it is not just all about victims, because there are those who are using this movement then to gain power through their sexuality. Yes, some women are true victims. Some women have really been injured. Some women went out there, flaunted it, saw just a little spark out of a man, and now they're going to use that to ruin the man so that they can get power over top of them. I thought it was very telling of a stat uh, that once Matt Lauer was fired a few weeks ago, two of the top three anchor people throughout the U.S. are now women. It's not typically a, a, a role that, that has a lot of women at the top, and yet because of this new swing, because of the way things are going down in the entertainment industry, women are coming out on top. Women are using this to come out on top. Not all of them, again. Some are truly victims. But doesn't that make it even worse on the victims that people are then using their own cause to gain power at their expense? Right. So to go to a perspective of biblical law and the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, for students of Rosh Duni and biblical law, we know that a synonym for righteousness is justice. So we need to be seeking justice, God's justice in all areas. And a concept that is little known, and I would dare say I have never heard it preached on from most churches I've attended, is the concept that Rush Dooney brings up in the biblical law volume called the liability of the bystander. If we witness something, whether we see it happening to someone else or it happens to us, we have a duty before God to seek justice. And justice doesn't mean, well, if I said something, I would lose my job. If I said something, nobody would believe me. Well, I can see how a person would say that if they're not in a living relationship with God Almighty and having the Holy Spirit guide their actions, because if they were, they would understand that where justice isn't going to be achieved societally, God has promised vengeance is his and he'll repay. Mm -hmm. And so when we have women who are now either justifiably have been injured, but didn't say anything at the time, or maybe did say something at the time and nobody listened, if the pursuit of justice isn't sufficient and instead what they want is they want people punished and they want people beaten down or whatever, then I'm not sure they're really going for justice. They're going for revenge. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we're told to stay away from. Well, but that's, that's, the, natural, that's the natural outcome of the pagan worldview. Because justice is held accountable to a universal law code that is not changing. When the law code changes, case to case wise, depending upon who's judging over it, when, when, when the law code changes based on the whims of society, then it's arbitrary and it becomes capricious and there is no law. There is no justice. And we can only exist in that so long before we get angry because there is something in us in humanity that knows there should be right and wrong, even though fallen nature wants to say, I can determine what's right and wrong, period. There's still that understanding that there is right and there is wrong. And if there's no way to get justice for wrong in the system, people are going to start acting out 
their own version of justice, their own attempt to put right and wrong onto people. And it's not just punishing the wrong, but it's coming out now and declaring this is the only way you can think. This is the only way to be right. This is the way you have to agree with this set of beliefs, this set of people, this this mindset, this worldview. How, how else was it going to turn out? You, you put the lack of justice, the lack of God's law in the world and combine that with the fallen nature of man, you're going to have a vengeful society, petty, individualistic, vengeful. So let's get back to the premise I started with, the biblical roles that God assigns to male and female. And the way in which we can have each gender, which is a God differentiation. So if you're born male, you're male, no matter how confused or how much you try to physically alter yourself. Let's just make that our presupposition to go on from here. In other words, how to instruct boys and girls, young men and young women to not only know God's law, but to value the decision God said, Kathy and Andrea were going to be female and our respective husbands were going to be male. And that's how God decided it. How do you think, especially as you're dealing with your daughter and will be dealing with your future children, how do you help them understand the value of God's choice? Well, I create a hedge. And I don't let anybody else say anything while she's young and and tender. Those first few years are critical when they can't think through everything to themselves. It's very important that the only worldview they get is the godly worldview. So that their default setting, their default understanding is always, well, but that's, that's just what God says. Why would I ever question that? You get into trouble when people try to work into, oh, well, yeah, this is what we believe, but other people believe this, and we're going to be tolerant of them. I'm sorry, we're, we're not called to tolerance. We're called to holiness. And that holiness says there's a right and there's a wrong. We're constantly in pursuit of the right. We're constantly in pursuit of holiness, which means if somebody's going the exact opposite way, then they're going wrong, period. We don't have to listen to it. We don't have to tolerate it under our roofs. We're allowed to remove our children from it. And this is, again, one of the biggest arguments to be homeschooling. And if you can't homeschool, at least get them into a Christian school. Because what they are exposed to early is what they will base all of their thinking on for the rest of their lives. So if you expose them to tolerance and multiple worldviews and everyone's allowed to have their own opinion this just happens to be ours well then they're going to say in 10 or 20 years well but i've decided i don't want that to be mine they're they're going to to wake up and realize oh huh, you already always told me there were other options i'm just going to take a different one and it should be equally as as right that's that's not training up a child in the way they should grow so when they're young you create a hedge. You don't let anybody else say anything else. And that's very difficult, especially when you have family who thinks um, that they're the same or who wants to have equal time and wants to have equal say in raising that child. It doesn't matter. You're the one accountable to God. 
you're the parent. You are where God caused that child to be born. You are responsible for making sure that this baseline, this status quo gets set. And then as they get older, you reinforce that. You talk them through the doctrine. And this is why women, if you're going to be teaching your children, you have to understand doctrine. You have to understand theology because they're going to turn around and ask you, but why? And you can't have an answer forever that's only, oh, it's just it's just how it is. It's just what the Bible says. You have to be able to explain through all of the doctrinal links of, of why God set this up, how it ties into every other doctrine. You have to have systematic theology to be able to answer those questions. And I'll go one step further, because what you're saying makes total sense, and it's certainly when I come, came to an understanding of all this, it's exactly what I intended to do. However, as children grow into young adults and adults, the circle gets wider. Does that mean that everybody who, has, who does what you just suggested won't see apostate children? No, I don't think that that's a fair assessment. First of all, my experience tells me otherwise. But the difference is that just the same way when you talked about your beauty and or for a woman or a man's capabilities, that if it becomes theirs and they're doing it for them, well, parents have to make sure they understand that parenting is a stewardship role, not an ownership role. Yes. And if you really want to help your children, the earliest communications need to include, I can't save you. Heck, I couldn't save myself. And you are responsible for your actions. So I can train you and I can show you and I can certainly pray that the Holy Spirit convicts you. But even if by the time you're in your late teens or your 20s or your 30s and somehow or other you just don't feel that inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, you are not now without guilt because everyone knows right and wrong. The Bible says that clearly. And mm -hmm. one of the best ways you know that is they hide what's wrong. Very few people <laughs> will come back and say, I got an A on my paper, let's say. They don't usually hide that. But if they failed or they got an incomplete, that's something that mom and dad might not see. The same way someone doesn't usually go in and announce to everybody, hey, I just had an abortion. But they might say, hey, everybody, I've got good news. I just found out I'm pregnant. So we know what's right and wrong. Children need to understand you're going to be held accountable, and I'm going to hold you accountable because I know you know taking that cookie without permission is wrong. Otherwise, you would have come in and flaunted in front of me and going, here, would you like one too? The difference is that when we teach them the gospel in the context of the law, they understand the remedy for sin. They understand that when they sin, that repentance and turning from that sin is part and parcel of the benefit of the Christian life. But even if they never experience that, we've got to communicate that what's wrong is wrong and what's right is right. And we achieve, we achieve a lot of that by being very transparent with them about our own sins. We, we talked earlier about the conversation that you use shapes your minds. Part of that conversation has to be, I messed up. Mommy did this wrong. This is how mommy did it wrong, according to the Bible. 
and this is how we make it right according to the Bible. And it's important that you see that so that you know, yes, well, I'm, I'm still responsible for your upbringing, and you're ultimately going to be responsible for yourself. I'm still responsible for myself, too. This is how we do it. Watch me and learn this. I didn't always get this right. This is where I would mess this up. This is important. And you can watch and grow with me. You can watch and grow with me because right now you may be my child, but in another decade, you're going to be my sister. And that's what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for you to constantly be waiting around, listening for, do this, don't do that, follow this in the Bible, pay attention to this. I am earnestly working towards the day when we are joined together in the work for the Lord, holding each other accountable. I don't want you to stay a child your whole life. I want you to grow in the Lord. This is where you should be ending up. Exactly, exactly. And when we do that, it's liberating as a parent, and it's actually liberating for the child, because then the child doesn't say, I don't want to get mommy mad. I don't want to get daddy mad as their operating basis. Their operating basis should be, I want to glorify God. And that means if it's a difficult conversation to have with mommy or daddy, if, you know, if mommy says, oh, I know you love XYZ and you have ceased liking XYZ a long time ago, but you go along with it because you don't want mommy to be mad at you, that is not the chief end of man. I used to say this to my children. The chief end of man is not to not have mommy and daddy mad at you, <laughs> right? Because that, first of all, mommy and daddy can fail you. And as you pointed out, there are times mommy and daddy make the wrong decisions. And, and we have to be honest and transparent. That's why it's, um, I, I've made the comment, one of the most dangerous things you can do is to teach your children the Bible. Because now you've told them, you've told them these rules apply to you and these rules apply to me. And if now that you understand it, you see me doing something that's contrary to scripture, you have a responsibility to point it out. Now you have to point it out with respect and all the various other things I've taught you. When my children used to come to me and say, oh, I want to be able to do this or that, and I'd say no. And they'd say, well, okay, let me tell you why I think this is correct. And a lot of times I had to say, you're right. Yep. My decision was hasty, and it was based on my preference rather than God's law. And that's a lot easier to do after you've had practice in it. So parents, if you haven't come to the point yet where your kids are old enough to be able to do that and come with it, you need to start mentally preparing yourself now so that your knee-jerk reaction isn't the, no, I'm mom and dad, I can't be wrong. Be ready, be eager for that. Because even if they don't quite totally get it right, they're still ready for the process of something's wrong with this mom. I don't think you're quite doing it right. I, I can't quite work through how to find out what the right is supposed to be, but I know this is wrong. Be, be ready for that. Be eager for that because that's, that's a change. That's a progression in your relationship. It's supposed to be happening. And the earlier it happens, the easier the following ones will happen. And, and the, the sooner you will get to that point where you are iron sharpening iron and you're not just parent over the child with the rod waiting to correct. Right. So one of the worst responses is because I said so. 
<laughs> now, it's easy, it's tempting, and you never want to convey to children that the reason you should listen is that I'm taller than you, I weigh more than you, without me, you don't eat, without me, you don't have a shelter. All those things are true, <laughs> right? However, if that's the basis, then the child says, I can't wait till I'm taller. I can't wait till I don't depend on them financially anymore. And then the premise changes. As you say, this is what's right as I understand it. And if I ever come across something that I think I have understood improperly that I had imposed on you, and I had to do that. I remember talking to one of my children and saying, you know, those decisions that I made with regards to you playing Little League, I was wrong. I should have done it this way, mm -hmm. right? That the reason I said no wasn't because I thought it was inherently bad for you. It was because it would be inconvenient for me, but I made it seem holy why I wasn't. And then the upshot of that, and I can definitely say this for parents who have small children, there's nothing quite so comforting as going to someone you have raised and saying, I need your advice. Yeah. Because that person knows you, that person knows your presuppositions and your, your point of view, not to say that an adult child will always think exactly like you, but there's a counselor now that you helped cultivate. There's, there's a, a very big difference between biblical mandates and then the household preferences that come bec because of the freedoms that we have with, with several of those. And that can be a stumbling block for many families because, okay, well, the biblical mandates are easy. Obviously, you can just open up and say, well, the Bible says right there, this is something that shouldn't be done. But if it's a preference based off of, okay, well, the Bible gives us leeway in between here and here and how to do this. Mom and dad want to do it this way. Mom and dad have a reason for doing it this way. This is, let's walk through the reason why we're doing this at first. And then, okay, well, why don't you contribute to that? And we will see if we can shift the household preference. And then we'll teach you how to make your own household preferences that are still within the law of God, but that take into effect what you are learning and doing in, in the life that you have been called to live. Exactly. And I've run into this with families that I've had the privilege of working with when their daughters say, well, I understand why you do it, and I understand why we've done it, but are you going to be okay if I don't agree with you? I, you see, because some parents not only want compliance, they want philosophical agreement on things that sometimes they don't have the right to ask philosophical agreement on. If someone actually thinks differently, even if they're going to comply with the rules and boundaries you put there, you have to grant them their personhood, that they're entitled to a different point of view. And I'm not talking about, well, this one thinks adultery is right, and I think it's wrong, and so we're going to agree to disagree. But for something as simple as, this is how people should celebrate Christmas. Okay, this may be how you wish to celebrate Christmas, and maybe your child goes along with it because there's no other option, but by the time that child is in a position to make decisions as an adult to say, you have to do it this way, otherwise you have betrayed your faith, is not only unrealistic, it's unbiblical. Yes. 
an example tying back to what we mentioned earlier and the problems with, with boys and, and the sports culture in our, our area, I would not begin to put that over onto everyone. Obviously, the, the problem against idleness, the problem of pursuit of amusement and entertainment at all ends is a universal issue. In our area, it's a sports culture, specifically within our family. It is an enormous issue. So we take an even harder stance against it because we have such strong opposition. There is nothing wrong with taking in a sports game, going over to your dad's house or going over to grandpa's house and watching a game on the weekend, sharing some male bonding time. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a problem with spending all of your time devoted to it. And because in our particular scenario, there is no in-between. The second you give one little foot, they're already saying, well, see, then you agree with us. Then you don't mind at all, and you're going to do it this way. We have to take a harder stance. That is not universally binding. We look forward to the day when we don't have to take this harsh of a stance on it. Every scenario has a some leeway room to it. Be, be wise. Know, know where you're at. Know what you're up against. Know what the Bible says the context of biblical law being applied is such that there's liberty. Once you understand the law of God and the parameters, then you have liberty in terms of how you exercise it. So I know families that observe the Sabbath in a way that I was not as strict with, but I respected their preference and no doubt, like you just said there, because of where they had come from and maybe what they had been involved in growing up, they wanted to make a break and do something different. So we have to acknowledge Christian liberty. I know people who involve their children in sports specifically so they won't be idle in front of a television or a video game, that they're actually doing something and that they're not you know, going to end up obese from eating cookies in front of the television all day. That is the godly answer, and that, that that is the only way that you could. If you if you barred them from it because of idleness, you'd only be promoting the idleness. Exactly. So as we understand the law, then we can look at our situation and apply it subjectively. I like to tell people the law and the gospel are objective truths. How we experience the situations in our life is very subjective. So, for example, a woman who has gone through abusive situations, is part, her, her life is part of the context that that's happened in. Her problem's going to come about if she subscribes to solutions or remedies that are not biblical, because no matter how good they sound, an unbiblical solution is still an unbiblical solution, which will not bring about the necessary blessings that God says, when you use my solutions, this is what happens. Kathy, I thank you because being as well-read as you are and in the trenches of real-life experience, I think this is useful for people to realize that we can bang around the ideas and not decide that the minutia of our life doesn't merit biblical examination. Good sharpening. Good sharpening for us. Catch you next time where we'll talk about another aspect of being kingdom-driven women in kingdom-driven families. Thank you for joining Andrea Schwartz in the Kingdom-Driven Family Podcast. 
holding up the family and self-government as a true and lasting means of transforming society. Please visit thekingdomdrivenfamily.com and reconstructionistradio.com.